be in Romans 4. Abram, 
but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. I'm going to read the next two verses too. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and, the, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in the generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And then turn right up to Genesis 22. Verse 17. These are familiar texts to a lot of people here. It says in Genesis 22, 17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now turn up to Genesis 28. In verse 14. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Notice I, I put down five things that we see in all these texts here. First, all families of the earth will be blessed. Second, he was going to be a father of many nations. Third, he was going to multiply his seed as the stars that are in the heaven, as the sands that's on the seashore. He says in that last one, that as dust upon the earth. Fourth, was he's going to possess the gates of thy enemies. That's what it says. And fifth, it was going to spread in all directions to bless all families of the earth. These were things that God promised to Abraham. This was the promise. This was the covenant that he made with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and this was it. This was the promise. When he says, for the promise that he should be heir of the world, this is the promise. And this is important. The important piece is that God made the covenant with Abraham, right? Not necessarily that Abraham made a covenant with God, but that God made the covenant with Abraham. When God covenants with someone, he keeps it. He doesn't make an excuse, does he? And I know we as humans say this. Oh, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Well, something came up. I'm running late. I ain't going to make it. God doesn't do that. Ever. Not one time has he ever done that. Has he ever been late to anything, right? And he does, has no excuses. When he says, I'm going to do this, he does it exactly how he says he's going to do it. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. And he promised, this promise to Abraham was a covenant that he made with Abraham that he will fulfill. Exactly how he says it. So let me sidetrack on this just for a little side point right here. God has promised to save his elect. He's promised that. So will he do it? Every last one of them? Doesn't the word say, and I know people love to quote this verse, uh, the sinner just loves to quote this verse as though it's in opposition to Calvinism, but it says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering to us word. Who's the us word? The elect. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, the, the, if you look at it right there, it, what Peter's actually say, says right there is not willing that certain ones should perish, but those same certain ones should come to repentance. He's long-suffering to us word, to the elect. He... he he didn't save everybody just like that when he promised Abraham, did he? He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Didn't Jesus say, all that the Father gives me shall come to me? And him that comes to me will I no wise cast out? All that the Father has given to me will come to me? Brethren, God has elect in this world, right? There's elect out there right now that aren't regenerated, that aren't justified by faith yet. They will be. How do we know? Because God has said it. 
Because God has promised it. All that will, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. They will. The question is, will we, we be the one preaching to them? Right? Because God's going to save his elect. He's going to use you, and if he doesn't use you, he will use another one of his elect to preach the gospel to them. Another point on that is, if God has saved you, he has promised to keep you. There's, God doesn't save people and lose them. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and I will in no wise cast them out. If you're saved today, you can rest in the promise that God will keep you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, right? Nothing. And if you, if you try to think of something, Paul gives you all kinds of, of things. He goes, in all of cre creation, nothing can separate you from the love of God. But back to our original point here. God made the covenant promise to Abraham that his seed would be as like the sand on the seashore. Is it like that now? When, when we look out, is, I don't think it's like that right yet, is it? He says... His seed would multiply to be like the stars in the heaven. How many of those? Come out to my house this evening. And when you walk outside and see all these stars. I can't count them. I can't even count the ones that's in my, in front, over my house right there. Imagine there's a whole earth of, of, surrounded by stars. He said all families of the earth will be blessed by his seed. Are all the families of the earth blessed by his seed right now? I think we could probably fly over to Afghanistan and find out that that's not completely happened yet, right? We could go to a lot of these, if you will, third world countries and see the gospel hasn't permeated their whole culture yet, has it? That's why we have missions. That's why we have missionaries. So you think God's failed to keep in His promise? That's the question. If I look out there right now and I, I don't see His seed multiply to be more than the sands on the seashore and more than the stars in the heaven. So the question has to be, has God failed in keeping His promise? Absolutely not, right? Notice what it says in Romans chapter 3, or chapter 4 and verse 4, 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world. It wasn't a promise that was to be fulfilled in Abraham's time. In Abraham's lifetime. It was an ongoing promise of God to continue to grow his seed. That you should be the heir of the world. Now, now you are the heir of the world, Abraham. But you will be the heir of the world. Your seed will be. And it wouldn't be a growth all at the same time, but a gradual growth. Kind of like a mustard seed or a leaven in a lump. That was the promise. But notice what else it says in Romans chapter 4. That you should be the heir of the world. You are the heir of the world. Not heir as in what you're breathing. Heir as in you have an inheritance. The word, the, actually the word there for heir in the Greek is a compound word which is uh, made up of two different words. The first word is kleros, which means a portion or an inheritance or a lot or a part. The second word is namos. And I don't know if any of y'all ever heard of that before, but we get our word antinomian, which means no law. Namos means law. So what this word Combined is saying that, in other words, the world was to be Abraham's law portion or his inheritance by law. Not the law, as in the Old Testament Mosaic law, but the law of faith. That's what our text says, right? The world was to be his inheritance. He was to be the heir, not through the law, but through faith. And that's really what Paul's point's been here in Romans chapter 4, has it not? First he showed us that justification and righteousness don't come through works in verses 1 through 5. And then we saw that he quotes David from Psalm 32, that, and, and he talks about the blessedness of the one 
by which righteousness comes apart from works. Then in case you had the argument, though it's not works, at least circumcision had to take place, he smashes that in verses 9 through 12, right? So it's not of works, it's not of circumcision. Since Abraham was justified before circumcision, now we see that this promise of being heir of the world was before the law. The promise of his seed being like sand and stars was not based on law. And here's part of the reason why. If it was based on law, Abraham would have failed. The promise would have been null and void, right? If you do this, Abraham, your seed will be this. Guess what Abraham wouldn't have did? Did whatever God told him to do. Because remember the law, what is the, in our text we've already seen this in Romans. What does the law do? It's the knowledge of sin. From the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law isn't given to us so that we may obey it and earn something. It's to show us that we're sinners, right? And in Galatians it tells us that the law is what? A schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. That's what it does. You hold the law up, you see how guilty you are. You don't get a checklist of things that you got to do in order to earn justification. You get to see how guilty you are. That checklist, every one of them you can write an X in because I failed, I failed, I failed. All the way down. If you want to have 613 commands like they had, you failed 613 commands. This is why Jesus would come along and say, well, you, oh, you haven't murdered? But you hated your brother, which is murder. Oh, you haven't committed adultery? But you lusted. That's adultery. Because we've all failed. Even when we think that we've kept the law, we've failed the law. And even, remember it says, I say this all the time in James, it says that even if you've kept the whole law, yet offended one point, you're guilty of all of it. Why? Because it's eternal. If it was based on the law, Abraham would have failed. This promise would have been made void by the disobedience of Abraham. And as we'll see, this promise is very important. It wasn't just a fleeting promise that, that it didn't matter that much, that God promised this and, and we just moved past it. It's quoted over and over again. We just saw it in Genesis. Boom, boom, boom. Four Four different times. It's quoted more than that, but that's all, the only ones I went to because I didn't want to keep them going to all these verses that show this. But it's an important promise. This was the promise that we see in the New Testament that God would take the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. That's what the promise is. Because how, how does this seed grow? By faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from, what does it say in Romans chapter 10? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, right? Hearing as we're going out preaching, God gives faith to his elect. And that was the promise that God would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He promised it. And this promise is still being fulfilled today by the church. You see that, right? We're all sitting here because of that promise. You, you know that. I know we, we don't tend to look back at Genesis and think, that's me. But we, we are sitting here today because of the promise that God made there. Now there's obviously other ones we could point to that, that we're here today for, but that's part of the promise. Right? Through the Great Commission. When he says, all power is given unto me. Go ye therefore, where? Into all the world, right? And make disciples in all the world. Not just in Jerusalem. As we see in Acts 1.8, it says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come un upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. In just Jerusalem? No. But both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to take the gospel and they started it right then, did they not? When Pentecost came, did they, did, did they just cower in a little building? 
I don't want to go preach. No, they went out and they died for the faith. They went out and preached. And God saved and saved and saved. And some of them were crucified. Some of them were sawn in half. Some of them, some of them were lit on fire. Some of them were thrust through with the spear. Why? Because they believed the Word of God. Because they believed that God was going to save unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why they went. I need to build on that some more, but I want us to see something that's of the utmost importance here in our text, which is the next point, the seed. The first point was the promise. We see the promise there was to Abraham. The seed, it says in verse 13, for the promise that he should be the that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. Now I know some of them say, some translations say descendants, but I don't think that's a good translation. It's a, it's a, a singular noun there, it's not a plural. And remember back in Genesis 22 where it says that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of his family. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my word. It says, thy seed, his seed. So the question is, who is his seed? I know some would like to say Israel, right? Israel's that seed. Israel's by which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I know, I know people that say that. Some people will say it's just the church. Right? The seed's the, the church. Let's see what the Word of God says, though. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made. Now, does that sound familiar? Sounds exactly like what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 there, too, right? There's a, Abraham, there's a seed, and there's a promise. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, now listen, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now look down at verses 27 through 29 in the same for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be in Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see that? This is the same thing that Paul's talking about there in Romans chapter 4. Who's the seed? Is it Israel? Is it the church? No. It's Christ Jesus. He is the seed. He is the promised seed that he said, in thee, in thy seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Your seed will grow to be more than the stars in the heavens and more than the sand on the seashore. Where's that found at? It's found in Jesus Christ. And he says right there in Galatians chapter 3, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, Jew, Greek. It does not matter. We make no distinction. If you're in Christ, you are Abraham's seed because you're in Christ. And you identify. That's why we're called Christians, right? Because we identify with Christ. So when we're in Christ, there's a doctrine called union with Christ. We're in union with Christ. All his good works are counted as mine. The blessings that he earned through obedience are mine. Because I'm in Christ. 
So Christ is Abraham's seed. And if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant and an heir according to the promise. That's what the text says. So what promise is Galatians talking about? It's talking about the same promise as in Romans chapter 4. So what does that say about you as a Gentile? I assume we're all Gentiles. I don't know if any of us are Jewish. It says you are the sand. You are the stars if you're in Christ. You're the, you're the fulfillment of that promise. You are Abraham's descendant. And didn't Paul already kind of tell us this in Romans chapter 2, where he says, For it is not, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letters. And his praise is not of men, but of God. And he'll say it again in Romans 90 when he says, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, who's that talking about? The Jews. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. When I say the Jews, I don't mean every single Jew ever. It's the Jews that sought to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. They're not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. So here's the key. Christ is the seed. that this blessing would come through. Not the Israelites, not the church, but they that would be in Christ by faith are counted as descendants of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. So now I'll expound a little bit on that, that previous point I was making. If Christ is the seed and those in Him would be Abraham's descendants, once again, how many would there be? Can you count them? I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. We can go out to the beach. We're not far from the beach. I can get you. I can get a shovel, and I got a wheelbarrow at the house too. I just dump one shovel full in the wheelbarrow, and we can all count sand. Just one shovel full. You think we'll make it through the day? <laughs> and we, we, like I said, we can go out there where it's dark out there in the country and look up and see the stars. I do it every night when I take the dog out. I look up and like, it's crazy. So many stars. How many would it be? How many would be the descendants of Abraham in Christ? And where would they come from? Turn with me to uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and verse 8. Jason, will you read that when you get there? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. <laughs> this is the Father talking to the Son. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Turn to Psalm 72. Where would these where would these stars and sand come from? Psalm 72, 8. We know from Psalm 2 that they're the heathen. Psalm 72a. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They shall dwell in the they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Saba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Where do they come from there? It's not just talking about Jews anymore, right? Psalm 2, when he says in the heathen, the heathen's not the Jewish people that he's talking about. He's talking about the Gentiles at that point. This one's talking about 
the kings of Tarshish, the kings of Sheba and Seba, yea, all kings shall fall before him. All nations shall serve him. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I know we're, we're doing a lot of flipping around in here. But the word speaks better than I do. Revelation 5 9. Let me probably know this verse. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the books and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hath made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Where, where are they coming from here? Every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Does this not sound kind of familiar with that Abrahamic promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed? And turn maybe up one page. I don't mind on the same page. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. How many were there? Which no man can number. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? If we want to go count the sand or count the stars, that sounds familiar, right? There's a great multitude that no man could number. Where did they come from? All over, from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. From the uttermost parts of the earth. All nations shall, shall serve him. That's what it says. This is what the promise was. This is where, when he says the promise, and it was through the seed, the promise is this. A great multitude which no man could number. Sounds like stars of heaven and sand of the seashore language. So the fulfillment of the promise is found in Christ. The covenantal promise is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the seed. Now listen to this. He's the same seed that was promised in Genesis 3. When we think about Christ being a seed, that should be our first thought is Genesis 3. After the fall of man, God promised the seed, the seed of the woman, right? The seed of the woman, what would he do? He would crush that serpent's head. We're familiar with that prophecy. That promise is really what it is. After man sinned and plunged humanity into total depravity, what was God's response? It was a promise. It was a covenant. That he would send a seed which would crush the head of the serpent. You see that our redemption story started with a promised seed and a promise. That the seed was promised, but it was also promised what the seed was going to do. He was going to crush the head of the serpent. Did he do it? Did the seed come with a woman? God keeps his promises. The same seed that was promised to Adam was the same seed that was promised to Abraham, which was the same seed that was going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is the same seed that is spoken of as the seed of David. This is Christ. This is Christ running through the Old Covenant. This is what we, we ought not never to miss when we, when we are looking at the Old Covenant. That's why... It's there for our learning, right? What we see, we see Christ from beginning to end of it. The same seed running all the way through, which would come at the end of the Old Testament, right? And fulfill it. And set up a kingdom. That would grow and grow to be a multitude which no man could number. Is that not the picture we just saw? I mean, I didn't make up the We went to verses. Verse after verse after verse that says that this kingdom will be an uh, uh, innumerable amount of saints. If only more Christians believe those promises, right? 
if only more Christians didn't think that we were on some sinking ship. And who cares? Who cares what happens? We're on a sinking ship. This place is going down. It's all going to get burned up. Who cares what we do, right? The apathy. To have someone, I've actually had it kind of said to me, I had it said to me, like, I can't believe you guys are bringing children into the world. This, this world's dying. What bad theology is that? God says, be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't give us a number. Just be fruitful and multiply. This isn't a sinking ship. Though it may feel like it sometimes. Though when you turn on the news, it, it seems like it, though, right? When, when you read through, through any of the websites out there, you think this world's going down. But do we trust our feelings? Or do we trust the Word of God? The Word of God tells us there's going to be an innumerable amount of saints. More than the sand on the seashore. More than the stars in the heavens. God the Father has promised to His Son a great multitude that no man can number. When He says, Ask me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, do you think He asked it? Christ has established His kingdom by His death, burial, and resurrection. And He's growing it even now today. Still growing. And he's, how's He growing it? He's growing it by using you and using me. That's what He does. We're His ambassadors, as it says in uh, 2 Corinthians. We're ambassadors of Christ. We, we are from another country, our country being heaven, and God has placed us here to preach the gospel. I'm sorry to overstate this point a little bit, but turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. This all goes hand in hand. Daniel 2.44. It says, And in the days of these kings, these kings here are the four kingdoms that's mentioned by Daniel. And the, the last one being the Roman kingdom, which is when Christ came during the Roman kingdom. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. That's when Christ came. Originally. Which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break into pieces and consume these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. This kingdom that Christ set up, what does it say? It said it's going to consume these other kingdoms and it's going to stand forever. Now turn to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel 7:13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Who's that? Amen. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancients of days and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You see how much bigger Christianity is than what we think oftentimes? We think it's all, it all surrounds around us, right? It's just me. God saved me. Oh, lucky me. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages shall serve him. All people, nations, and languages shall serve him. And you notice that it says, the Son of Man, which we are already brought out in Missy mentioned. Now, Jesus names himself as the Son of Man. Does he not? And he also speaks about his kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew 13, which I've already mentioned, that the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed. A little tiny mustard seed that he says is the least of all seeds, that when it is grown, it grows into the greatest of herbs. It becomes a tree. 
that all the birds of the air come and flock to. He says it's like leaven that a woman took. How I had to I, I was looking up leaven. You know, leaven's about that big too. And you put it in the, you put it in the flour, and what happens? It consumes all of it. It's the same thing that we saw there in Daniel chapter 2. It's going to consume all the kingdoms. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It started, how did it start? With 12? 12 disciples? Then well, how many do we have in the upper room? 120? Then what happened? The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Did it stay at 120? Or did those 120 go out and preach? And how many did God start saving then? 2,000? 4,000? We see it growing right away. His kingdom will continue to grow. And it says in Isaiah, which we didn't go look at, but it's our favorite Christmas verses, you know, that it says the increase, the increase of his government shall have no end. I know we live in a day and age where some think the increase of our government, government will have no end. But it says the increase of his government shall have no end. Until all the ends of the earth shall bow before him and worship. When it says in Habakkuk, when the earth shall be filled, when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the water covers the sea. How much the sea is covered with water? <laughs> the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. And that's the great eschatological hope, eschatological hope of the Old Testament prophets. That's what they're writing. That's what they're pointing to. Is that God's going to save. It's not going to be just little people. Once Christ comes as the seed, as the promise of Abraham, when he comes, it's going to explode out into all nations. And all the kings of the earth will worship him. So the question is, do you believe that? That this isn't a sinking ship. That God is working. That God is saving. That God is keeping his promise. So if that is true, what's the answer for us is to take heart, right? It's to take heart. It's to, it's to do what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. He says, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Who cares what your culture says? What did the Apostle Paul tell us there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Be strong, act like men, stand firm in the faith. Why? Because we can rest in the promises of God. Our third point is the righteousness of faith. So the question is, how is all this accomplished? We see, let's, let's actually go back to Romans 4. I'll reread that verse so we see this. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. So how's all this accomplished? Isn't that what Paul's point is in all of this whole section here? He's proving over and over and over and covering every facet of it. He presents his argument that the righteousness of God without the law was manifest. And after presenting that, also presents the arguments against it and handles them, right? Paul is not leaving a stone unturned. He doesn't just say something and, and, and believe it or not, I walk away. He, he, I know what your argument is going to be. It's going to be this. I'll deal with this now. And I'll smash that. Oh, you there in the back. I see you got an argument too. I'll smash that too. This is what Paul does through Romans. He doesn't leave a stone unturned. He says, it's not by works. It's not by circumcision. It's not by the law. That's what we've dealt with through Romans chapter 4 so far. It's through the righteousness of faith. 
And when you look at verse 14, he tells us why. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. If they which are of the law, who's that? As I already mentioned, it's the Jews that sought after righteousness by works. It's those ones that looked to the law and thought, I can keep the law in order to be just before God. It's that rich young ruler, remember? All these things I've kept since my youth. Okay, one thing, sell everything you have. Follow me. Which showed that he didn't keep all those things since his youth. He's kept none of those things since his youth. They were seeking their own righteousness. And we know that we have no righteousness as a result of all that last week, right? What is our righteousness? What did we see last week? What is our righteousness? Filthy rags and dung. Your righteousness will only take you to hell. That's, if, you want to, if you want to cling to your righteousness, that's your future. I can honestly say that. If you want, I'm holding up, holding up my good works, I'm going to make it to heaven that way. I know you're going to make it to hell that way. That's it. We need, as I mentioned a few times, alien righteousness. We need that righteousness that comes from another. Because we have none. Ours is disgusting. We need a perfect righteousness. Where's a perfect righteousness? It doesn't come from me. It's that righteousness that's found in Christ and received by faith. That's the righteousness of faith. They say, God-given faith that embraces Christ as our justification before God. That's what, that's what our righteousness is, is. Is embracing Christ as my justification before God. It's the faith that can step off into eternity saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I come. That's it. Jeremy, why should I let you into heaven? This doesn't want to happen, but Jeremy, why should I let you into heaven? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. If your righteousness isn't good enough, I have nothing else to offer. So the question is, do you have that faith this morning to step off into eternity? Embracing only the righteousness of Christ. Are you looking to the Savior this morning as a bloody sacrifice for your sins? Yes, we sin. Oh, yeah, we all sin. Yes, we all sin. But are you looking this morning as, as to Christ as He's the sacrifice for my sins? He paid for my sins. I have no sin. In Christ, guess what? You have no sins. We, did, we dealt with this a few weeks ago. When I said that He's cast them into the ocean, it says it's in the depths of the ocean. And that ocean's made of blood. The blood of His Son. And God's not out there swimming in that ocean pulling back up your sins. They're gone if you're in Christ. So the question is, are you in Christ? Are you looking to Him as my justification before God? As my sin bearer? As the one who earned perfect righteousness by keeping the law in my place? Is He the reason we're here this morning to worship? To worship Him as a risen Savior, right? It's not that... I sinned, I earned hell, Christ died for my sins, and then I'm free. No, it's that Christ lived the perfect righteous life for me, placed that into my account, was crushed for my sins, and three days later he rose from the grave. Praise God, right? We don't serve a dead Savior, we serve a risen Savior. And he rose for our justification, and in that he defeated death, sin, and Satan. This is why Jesus could say, and I say all the time, if you believe in me, you shall never die. That's what Jesus said. Is that true? Yes, for the Christian. We don't die. Our death already, my death happened 15, 20 years ago when I was given new life in Christ. When the Christian passes, we don't, it's not a death. It's going from life to life. Because he defeated death. And we can say, oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? You have none. Because Christ defeated it. So the question is, who are we resting in this morning? 
Are you looking to yourself or your own righteousness? Or are you looking to Him and the righteousness of faith? If not, the call this morning is repent of your sins and to stop looking to yourself. Stop looking to your righteousness. Stop thinking, I'm righteous enough to go to heaven. And look to Him in faith. Why? Because He's mighty to save. And not just from the power of sin. We know this as Christians. That God saved us from the power of sin, right? But He also will save us from the presence of sin one day in glory. There will be no more sin. He shall save His people from the sin, from their sins, right? It says in Matthew one twenty one. To avoid application here. I think a major point is trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in the promises of God. That promise that was made to Abraham, did God keep it? Is He keeping it? Is He fulfilling it even today? Yes, He is. And we can look out and see it. That He's, he's still saving people. That number's still growing. Trust in the promises of God. You can rest in Him without trying to funny, but I kept on thinking about this that whatever you're going through, if you ever watch wrestling, the, the, the rock is like, it doesn't matter. That's what it felt like when I was, when I was going through this. What, what are you going through today? It doesn't matter what you're going through, right? Because God has promised. He says, cast all your cares upon Him for He cares for you. That's what God told us. That's a promise. He says He's going to comfort us. The God of all comforts. That's a promise. He will comfort us. No matter what you're going through. He says that all things work together for our good. Right? As Christians. To them that love God. To them who are called according to His purpose. And the Scriptures also tell us that God cannot lie. So you believe Him this morning on those promises. No matter what you're going through. And I know we're facing some tough times here. Some tough decisions some of us might have to make. But the question is, who's on the throne? I text, me and you text back and forth, but who's on the throne? It doesn't matter what anybody tells you. Who is on the throne? Who is the sovereign one? Who is the king by which all nations of the earth will bow before? The omnipotent, sovereign one who's promised to keep us and comfort us and bless us. Turn to me real quick. I think this is the last verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him amen unto the glory of God by us. All the promises of God are in Him yea and amen. God cannot not keep His promises. He can't. Because why? Because they're found in Christ. He would have to he would have to do away with His Son before He didn't keep a promise to you if you're in His Son. So the question you should ask yourself when you're going through those valleys and you're questioning God, God, why are you bringing me through this? God, why are you doing this? And I know we all do. We get down and we think, God, He just doesn't love me anymore. Something's going on. I know I sinned. Maybe this is God punishing me because of my sin. The question we need to ask is, is Christ still on the throne? If Christ is still on the throne, God is still keeping His promises. And if you're in Him, those promises are made to you, and nothing can change that. So if you're threatened to lose your job, which I typically don't bring up this kind of stuff, but it needs to be brought up. If you're threatened to lose your job, if you don't obey some, some, some mandate out there, is Christ still on the throne? That's the question. Is Christ still on the throne? 
And I'm not trying to be political, but this is a matter of conscience for many, right? And if your conscience tells you don't do it, guess what? Don't do it. It's sin to not obey your conscience. You obey God rather than men, right? Well, what about Romans 13, right? Doesn't it say to obey the government? Yes, it does. But you obey the higher authority. If or when the government tells you to sin, you disobey it. You do not listen to them. But then I might go to jail and lose everything, right? It's a hard choice, but is Christ still on the throne? Is the sovereign one who says all the nations of the earth will bow before me? That says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he still on the throne? One thing we know is that God will keep his promises to you if you're found in Christ. He'll keep his promises to you if you're found outside of Christ. That promise is nothing but death and hell and punishment. And you know this, right? We know this. We, we will readily confess that God will keep his promises. If God said it, he'll do it. But then when we're in the valley, we start doubting. Ask yourself, is Christ still on the throne? I want to quote an old saint here. He is a disciple of the Apostle John. He is facing martyrdom. And his name is Polycarp. It says, Swear urged the proconsul. This is them talking to him. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp says, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he's done me no he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? And then the proconsul says, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp says, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad to be changed from evil to righteousness. And then the response was, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is distinguished, extinguished, extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Could we do that? No. <laughs> Pray to God we can. Pray to God we don't have to, though. So they bound him up and burned him out of state. Now there's more to the story, but you can go read it. I'm sure it's in the Fox Book of Martyrs. But what's the, what's the, how should we respond? Stand firm in the faith, right? The same thing Paul said. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong in the face of tyranny. That's what that was. And I don't say this as a Republican or as a Democrat. I say this as a Christian. We have clear commands from God. We have clear promises from God. If God commands something, obey it, and He will keep your promises, or keep His promises, even in the face of death. The last point of application, which is probably obvious, is preach Christ. I can't get away from that point. When I'm going through verses, that's what I think of. Preach Christ. In response to God being a covenant-keeping God, and His promising, Him promising to save to the uttermost, right? Him promising an innumerable number of saints that He will save. Him promising that all nations will worship before Him. Do you think He's done saving people? Do we think it's over all of a sudden, God, I'm done. That's... Absolutely not. Preach Christ. Be used for God's glory and the advancement of His kingdom. His kingdom is, is advancing and will continue to advance and will you be, as Daniel says, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever.
That's you. I know in the past few months we've dealt a lot with sinfulness, right? Through Romans. And how we fall short of the glory of God, but that's the other, this is the other side of the coin. You will shine bright as the stars forever and ever. Be used for His glory, right? Say like Isaiah, here I am, Lord. Send me. That's what we're here for. That's what the kingdom, that's what God is using us to advance His kingdom by taking forth the gospel. So His name will be praised. Amen.